2 Samuel chapter 13, and the kids can go to the Sunday school if they're not already there. I'd like to just speak on our continuing subject of the life of David, and this has been really a rich study on David's life, King David's life. We know David as the psalm, and as a shepherd of the Psalms in the Old Testament. We know that David killed Goliath, and we know that David was a great, great king in Israel, and he was a man that was after God's own heart. Uh, but there's a lot of things that we're learning about his life as we study the biography of his life. And David is a man that um, is, I think it was a risk for God to write about him in the Bible because this man was not a perfect man. And I've said this before, but if I was going to write the Bible, I would write it differently. And that's why I didn't write the Bible. God wrote the Bible. And I would write it about people that were perfect people. They never made mistakes. They never sinned. They were just nice people. Everything was great in their life. But when you study the life of David, and if you take the time to read the biography of any any of these men's lives, you dis- you discover that God is not... He is not afraid to talk about what happens in their lives with their struggles. And we, we talked last week about David's affair with Bathsheba and how God took that and redeemed the whole thing to, for his grace and how God brought a great blessing out of it and how Solomon was born. Now we're going to talk about Solomon later, but Solomon was really just a story of God's redemption. But as we continue down the road here in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we see that that part of the consequences of David's mistake was that he was going to have trouble in his family. And we have to stop here just for a moment and look at this, that when the believer fails, we can rebound in the grace of God in 1 John, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. And when the believer fails, we can rebound into the grace of God and get back into our momentum with God, and our sin is forgiven. And the way the Bible talks about forgiveness of sin is in the sense that as if it never even happened in the eyes of God. But there are sometimes, um, in David's case, there are these consequences that really impacted David's family. Now, God didn't only pay for our sin, he conquered it. God didn't only pay for our sin, but he overcame the effects of it. And so what happens here is, is that David is in a place where there are things that are going to happen to, me, to him because of the, uh, the publicity of what had happened. But God is going to be giving David mercy. And this is the great thing about us is that we, I don't know about you, but, uh, and I'm sure all of us are in the same boat, um, we are frail people and we make mistakes. That's part of humanity, isn't it? Has anyone here met a sinless person yet? If you have, please come to me after the service. Let me know who they are, and I'd like to go meet them and see what their secret is. I know, and I know all of us, need grace every day. And we're going to fall down flat on our face. That's going to happen. And the great thing about the the grace of God is, is that God knows it's going to happen. God knows things that are going to happen in our life before they even happen. And nothing shocks God. We're, sometimes we're shocked at what things that we do. We're like, sometimes, there have been times when I've messed up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't, and we've all been there. I can't believe that that happened. 
I know better. <laughs> How many have ever been in that place? Like, I know, I know it's, I know it's so much. I know, I know what to, I can give you 25 verses on why that was wrong. <laughs> and then the conscious is beating us up, and then the atmosphere, the devil's beating us up, and then people that we know are beating us up, and then come home and our dog doesn't even want to greet us. That's bad. I don't know if you've ever come home and your dog... We used to have a cat. cat went home to be with the Lord. Kitty heaven. And I remember one time I had a really hard week. It was just really difficult. And I thought... I was driving home and I'm thinking, well, my cat's going to be there. She's going to like to... She's going to be happy to see me. You know, because the cat would always come to the door and meet you. I came home and the cat didn't even get out of the, out of the uh, couch. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is just... This is, this is, these are the last days. I'm going to be... I'm going to be going home to be with the Lord soon. And I just remember thinking that, you know, God is with me. Paul said, all have forsaken me, but the Lord stands with me. And we have an advocate in heaven. 1 John verse, chapter 1, verse 7, 8, and 9. An advocate, a lawyer in heaven. Imagine that. How many of us have ever been in a situation where we've been victimized and uh, we've had to call a lawyer who says, don't worry, you're innocent. I'm going to go to bat for you. I really, I believe you. I'm going to fight for you. Don't even worry about this. It's going to be taken care of. And then he takes care of the case, and hopefully it wins, and he, and he wins as an earthly lawyer. Our lawyer in heaven always wins the case. And it's not that God brings something against us. Our enemy, the devil, brings a case against us. The devil brings cases against us to God, the great judge. And I, that's, not, that's not our message today, but I just want us to know that when the devil comes in like a flood, and I was thinking about this verse earlier than this week, when the devil comes in like a flood, guess what happens? The, the Lord raises a standard up against him. You know what that word standard means? A, law, a rule of law. He raises up, a, raises up a defense against the devil. And so when the devil comes against you, or life comes against you, or people come against you, or you yourself, and by the way, we are our worst Critics, it's unbelievable. The God of heaven who created the universe forgives us, but we'll still be in our house beating ourselves up because of things that happened in our life. The strength of sin is in what? The law, right? And the condemnation, when we condemn ourselves, when we live in condemnation, when God has forgiven it, that even strengthens it more. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is that, therefore, now no condemnation. I like that's in the present tense in the Greek. Now. Today, right now, as we are sitting in this chapel, there's no condemnation for those who are, that are in Christ Jesus. And when we are born again, and I just want to say that, that we want to make sure, and I believe that we have all done this, but we, always, we want to make sure that there's been a day in our life when we say, yes, I, that day I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I accepted him. I remember my wife said this, and she was uh, in the Catholic Church, and she was in her, what, confirmation, right? Or what was that called? That, that moment where they... Communion. Communion. Holy Communion, right? Or was that... The, I, I, I was not Catholic, so I don't know. First Communion. First communion. And she was a little girl, and, she, and her priest was probably a, a real believer, and, and uh, her priest told her, and she understood that she's receiving Jesus Christ into her heart, and she's surrendering her life to God. And that she was going to become a disciple. And that was like she became born again. And there must be a time in our life where we've made that decision to receive Christ as our personal Savior. Because it's possible that we could be going to church all of our life and never know God as our personal Savior. God wants to be personal. 
And so David here messes up. He messes up in his life. And God here is a God of redemption. And God wants to bring us all back to a place of great redemption. But David's mistake really wounded him. And, you know, when we fail, and all of us have been in this place, we, we get that something is wounded inside of us. And we, we know that. We know that, especially David's failure. This was a very deep wound. Proverbs 18, verse 14 says, The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity. But listen to this. But a wounded spirit, who can bear? Who can bear a wounded spirit? You ever meet a wounded person? And they have so many burdens. And you're trying to carry them along from decision to decision. Like, okay, now get out of bed. It's going to be okay. Okay, here's a cup of coffee. Okay, now we've got to go to the store. I don't, and they're so depressed or they're so discouraged or so defeated in their, in their life that they just... It's, it's impossible to bear them. How many have ever been in that kind of a place? Maybe, hopefully, temporarily, not long-term. And that can happen. Who can bear that? No human being could ever bear the wounded spirit of another person. And that's only why Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, can do that in John chapter 16. And so people, we become wounded. We become wounded because of different reasons. Number one, we can be wounded because of personal mistake. Number two, because we become a victim of somebody else's mistakes. We live in a world of, just, of people who fail all the time. And there's no more wounds that I can think of that can be created than by the words of other people. People say things. And I, one of these days, I just want to have a whole message about communication skills. I just want to talk about how we communicate as Christians. Because we can, be so, we can offend so easily in what we say through carelessness. I personally believe that the Bible says in Matthew 12, verse 36, that we will have to give an account for every idle word that we give, that we say. And so I want to be so careful about how I communicate to people that in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and I guess we're talking about it now, <laughs> uh, it, says, it says, let your words on earth be few. And I like that verse because it doesn't mean that, that let your words be few, like I have to walk around and not say anything to people. I thought, when I was in Bible school, I read that Bible verse, and I thought, okay, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to walk around and be silent. And that lasted maybe for a couple hours. And I said, I can't obey that verse. And then I read the verse more, and I understood that it says, let your words be few, meaning personal opinions and what your, the, your emotional impact about things. Let that be few, because God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. And so when we become wounded, that's something that becomes very hard for us to bear in life. It affects our motivation. It affects our, our relationships. It affects our job. We go to work and we're just like, we got like molasses in our blood. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever felt that way? I felt that way a few days ago. <laughs> My brother and I were sent to a conference for training to uh, learn how to um, well, we have been um, invited to do a Bible study for congressmen in the State House in Trenton. And we're praying about that to see if that's the will of the Lord for us. And uh, we traveled out there, they flew us out there, and I just felt like the molasses man. I just was like dragging my feet because of the time difference. And sometimes things happen to us and we become wounded. And knowing how to deal with that wound is so important because that can impact every part of our life. And the question is, is not, 
trying, not trying to get through our life without getting hurt or bumped or beaten up or dented, because that's going to happen. How many have ever bought a brand new car and then you drive it for just a short amount of time down in the city and it just gets a dent, somebody opens their door, they scratch your side of your car with their key. That happens, doesn't it? We're trying to gingerly take care of our car. I see that now on cars these days, they have like these rubber mats that kind of hang over the back. Have you seen those? For those tight spots when people pull in, so that when people bump your car, I guess it's only in downtown Philly or in New York City, so that they don't scratch your bumper. How many have seen those? Okay. We try to get through life without getting bumps or scratches, and that's not going to happen because things will happen to us that we cannot control, and it's going to hurt us. And so how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? Well, I want to talk about that at the end of the message. <clears throat> but I want, to look here, I want to look here at David. And David now is in a situation where it's somewhat of a period of time after his, his, the birth of his son Solomon and his affair with Bathsheba. And he has wounds inside that have not been dealt with. And in Psalm 51, we can see he talks about those wounds. He said he's talking about the deep pain and so we see that this really kind of affects his leadership as a husband and as a king in, in his nation, in Israel. And so I want to just go through these six points, six things that happened to David's son and how it impacted his son and what had happened. And in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 19, we have the story of Amnon, which is David's, one of David's son. He had this son through Abigail, and Absalom's brother, uh, his, his, the other son of David, um, violates his sister Tamar. And this is a very like unbelievable situation in the family here. David's family is really, in, in, in ways here, very dysfunctional. And you can see that Amnon um, rapes his sister and then casts her out. What an unbelievable situation. And it's amazing that the Bible even covers this. But the, the result of it is, is that Amnon throws his sister out, and his sister Tamar is now just destroyed. She's just destroyed. She's I can't even believe this happened. And she, she's just shamed. She's just discouraged. And she's just in a place of great defeat. And so she doesn't tell anybody, but Absalom which was this beautiful young man. He was, it said, the Bible says that he had five pounds of hair. Can you believe that? What an afro he had. Five pounds of hair. How do you cut that? I don't know. And I looked at that in the Bible, and I said, is it really five pounds? Yes, it was five pounds. And he was very good to look at. He, was very, he, had, David's, he had David's looks. And so Absalom here sees his sister Tamar just wrecked. And he goes over to her and says, what's happening? And she says, nothing. And then he finally gets it out of her, what had happened. And Absalom is so angry at his brother Amnon for what he did to Tamar, his sister. He can't even believe it. And so David decides to do nothing about it. David does nothing about it. And I believe that David does nothing about it because he himself feels guilty, has a guilty conscience, and that he feels that if he was to try to deal with this, he would in some way feel hypocritical in the way he was dealing with it because he himself was not such a great guy in the past. 
So David is still living under the guilt of what had happened. And so for two years, David does nothing. And this, this is the first stage of um, Absalom's rebellion against his father. Because we see later on that Absalom leads this great rebellion against his father and tries to kill him because of, the, because of his anger. And so the first stage here is, is that Absalom gets wounded. Absalom had this great sense of justice like his father did. Remember David when, uh, he's, when he cut the, the um, robe of Saul and his heart just, it says in the, in the King James, smote him. Like he was just convicted in heart. Like what did I do that's God's king? He had this great sense of justice. And then later on when Nathan came to him about his mistake with Bathsheba, he had this great sense of justice. And so in Absalom, there was this great sense of justice that justice has to be done. And Absalom had this. He said he was thinking and he was just brewing in his mind that Amnon got away with this. He got away with violating my sister. This is my sister. And this is my brother that did that. And he began to, it began to brood and began to like, it began to, he began to become very angry. For two years, nothing happened. So what does he do? He gets wounded. He's wounded. And that's really the first stage of like any conspiracy or any kind of uh, rebellion or any kind of acting out of anger. There's first that initial wound. And that can happen to v- people at a very young age. The second thing is, that happens, is in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we see um, all the way to verse, from verse 20 to verse 33 that, David's doing nothing to discipline Amnon. So Amnon, so Absalom waits two years, and after two years, he gathers some of his men that are faithful to him, and he says, we are going to execute, we are going to administer justice to my brother because my father will do nothing about it. Sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Sounds like this could be a miniseries of some kind. And so they trick him out, they get Amnon drunk, and what happens? David, uh, Absalom's men and Absalom murder Amnon. Word gets back to David. And verse 34 of chapter 13 through verse 39, Absalom just takes off with these men. He just flees for his life because he knows he's in trouble. David hears about it, and David is very angry at Absalom. And instead, and this is the, this is the second mistake that David makes. The first mistake should have been that he should have, he should have dealt with the situation with Amnon. The second mistake is, is that he, let, he lets his son go without any kind of reconciliation, without any kind of son sit down, let's talk about what just happened. I want you to know I love you. And then, and then creating this atmosphere of love, acceptance, and recovery. But what happens is, is that David makes a second mistake. And this... Absalom is gone. Now he's separated, and it's about four years that Absalom is away. Absalom runs to, guess who? I did a little research here on the plane. He runs to his grandfather, the king of Geshur, in Talmai, it says here. David, uh, Absalom runs to his father because Absalom is really needing that family connection that he's not getting with his dad. So he goes to his grandfather on his mother's side. Are you following me? Mm-hmm. Everybody follow me? We see a wounded man, don't we? Absalom's wounded. And this is the second stage of conspiracy, the festering wound. It's just growing. 
And Absalom is trying to replace the rejection of his father's love with another family member. And we see that this has not happened. So what happens here is, is that in 2 Samuel chapter 14, after four years, after four years of Absalom's absence, David caves in to Joab, his general, and says, why don't you just let Absalom come home? He really, you love him, I can see that, Joab says. I can really see that you love him. Why don't you just let him come home? But David cannot forgive Absalom for what had happened. And David says, okay, I'll let him come home, but I don't want to see his face. And this, is, this is the third mistake here that David makes, that he is not allowing the reconciliation to happen. Absalom comes home, and at this point, he's very popular. And he has a very winning personality. He's very influential with people. Uh, he's tall. He, he has David's good looks when David was younger. And so he comes home, and is not allowed to see his father. Can you imagine that? You know, being in the palace, and palaces those days were not as big as the palaces that we can think of today. He is trying to make his way through the palace without running into his father, because he doesn't want to see it. His father doesn't want to see his face for the, for the, he is fearing for his life. And so finally, Joab convinces David to see his son. And this is in Chapter, four, uh, chapter 14, verse 33, David finally allows his son, who is highly favored and loved by many, to come into his presence. And this is the fourth and final, I think, blow to Absalom. Absalom comes into David's presence, into his court, with the expectation, I'm going to be reconciled with my father. And everything's going to be great, and it's going to be wonderful, and life's going to continue. We're going to be re reconciled. The past is going to be behind us. But what happens? We read that, that event with David and his son Absalom was just a filial or family formality. Absalom bows before his father in just submission and, and um, towers before him in, in, in one sense. David kisses him, and that's it. That's it. That was just a formal family formality. Absalom does not find that acceptance in David's eye. Now, at this moment, we can see that in chapter 15, verse 1, that this is the final blow for Absalom. Absalom now is wrecked. And we cannot blame David, because David here, of course, is at, is at fault. But Absalom, who is being wounded, um, is being targeted now by the devil to create some type of destruction in David's household and in David's family because the devil really wants to bring David down because he's God's king and God is using him in Israel and he wants to bring David down to destruction and his family. We have to understand that our enemy, our enemy is not just someone who's going to be satisfied with our mistakes. He wants our utter destruction. He wants us to be a smoldering pile of ashes by the time he's done with us. But the, the, the Lord will not let that happen to us. We have to understand that our enemy in 2 Peter chapter 3, is, a, is chapter 5, is like a roaring lion. And the word there in the Greek, roaring, 
is roaring in the sense of a lion who, when he becomes old and has no more teeth in his mouth anymore, what he does is he roars a lot because he wants to, he wants, um, he still wants that status in the pack. How many of you have ever, ever watched these uh, Animal Planet um, documentaries about lions and their packs and the ranks that they're in? And these lions, uh, these old lions, still want that intimidation, so they roar a lot. And this is the way that the Apostle Peter is describing the devil, that he is just roaring a lot, and he's making a lot of intimidating sound. But he really has no power in the believer's life unless the believer wants to believe a lie. And so we need to understand that David has an enemy here. And Absalom becomes now in 2 Samuel chapter 15 a crusader. He, is, he begins to crusade against his father and the conspiracy begins. And we could we can see this and we will look at this uh, next Sunday and how that turns out and how God delivers David and how David's heart is broken at the death of his son, son Absalom. I want to just take a couple minutes before I close and, and talk about how God heals us from these wounds that can happen. It could be that we could be an Absalom ourselves. We could be a person that has been hurt by a church, that's been hurt by a family member, that's been hurt by an organization, by our job, by other people. And if we don't allow God to heal us, then we could turn into a raging, vengeful, angry person. A person that is just out to destroy. And that life's not great when that happens. It's not a great life. And it's, it's just a life of just discouragement. And I tell you, I'm not, don't feel like I'm preaching at you because we're all in the same boat here. I'm talking to myself that there are things that when we get hit, we've got to know how to raise our shield of faith and know that God is for us. There, there are these fiery darts in Ephesians chapter 6 that are discussed here in that chapter where it says that lifting your, uh, uh, having a shield of faith that you, may, that you may withstand the fiery darts. And those fiery darts uh, historically were these little small arrows like about that long that the Romans used in their, in their warfare. And they were, on the end they were lit on fire and they had poison on the end, they had like a poison sap. And when they, would, when they would hit somebody, it was not necessarily to kill them, but it was to disable them for further battle for the next two years. The poison would enter into their system, and for the next two years they were poisoned. They were just poisoned, they were just non-functioning as a soldier. And these are the kind of darts that the devil wants to shoot at us. We need to build ourselves up because this world system, our own conscience, other people, and this whatever always comes against you and to really beat you and I up. When God says in Romans chapter 8, if I, in verse 32, if God gave us his son, will he not freely give us all things? You know, in heaven, in Hebrews chapter 12, I believe verse 1, it says that we have this cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on, those that are our loved ones that have gone on before us, our great-grandparents, our parents that have gone on before us, that are cheering us on, that are saying, you know, we are in heaven, it's all worth it, don't get discouraged, don't throw in the towel, go for it, God is for you. And we have to understand that there is so much discouragement in this world, we have to understand that God is for us, He's for our families, 
He wants us to grow in grace. He wants to see us really, and I'm not here to preach a prosperity message, but I'm saying God wants us to possess our possessions in the promised land that he's given us. That God, we look at God through our own eyes, through these analytical eyes, like, okay, God's like analyzing my every move. He's analyzing my thoughts right now. And, and we just turn into these introspective psychoanalysts. How many, have ever, how many have ever done that? Just analyzed yourself to death. And then you don't even want to leave your house because you're so discouraged. <laughs> God is for us. God said, I, and again, I'm just going to say this again. I repeat things a lot here, but I like this. When Peter was on the boat, he saw Jesus walking in the water. He said to, he said to Jesus, Lord, call me to come and I will come. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus analyze his performance? Does Jesus say, you haven't been a great guy lately? You haven't really trusted me? You failed yesterday? You yelled at the other disciples an hour ago? No, he didn't do that. He said, come. God loves faith. God loves faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. When we trust him, he is pleased. That glorifies God. And I just want to say today, let's trust God. Take steps of faith in our life and understand that every step that you take there's a host of angels and the unseen host in heaven that are cheering us on. And I think if we could just hear for a millisecond those cheers. How many have ever been to a Phillies game or an Eagles game and the, and the stadium is just like deafening, roaring? It's just so loud, okay? Imagine that multiplied by 10 million times. I think if we heard that, of the angels and God and all of those that have gone on before us cheering you on, I think we'd just be, we'd be stunned to death because of just the amazing, amazing applause and encouragement. God's grace goes before us. God said that I go before Israel to burn up the enemies. I just want to say, I want to encourage us this morning that God is for us. And instead of acting out our wounds like Absalom did, we can be healed. How do we do that? Very simply, we take our stuff. I like how Pastor Schaller says that he Take all of our stuff and just bring it to the foot of the cross. I mean, all of our stuff, all of our, this is what happened to me, this is what she did to me, this is what he did to me, that person did that to my family member, I've, this is what they did to me at work. Uh, you know, all those conversations that people have, you know, like, and you can hear them all the time. Take all that stuff that we say is my stuff, my injury, my reasons why I'm not talking to that other person in the family. Take all that stuff and bring it to the cross. And just surrender it there. And just say, you know what, that's not mine anymore. I'm just divorcing that stuff, that trash. It's like someone who hoards. You know those hoarders? You ever <laughs> see those things in the, in the, in, on TV about hoarders? Or someone drove by us the other day and they were just like, I'm not even kidding. Old car, all of a sudden they're driving like this and their whole car was just filled with trash and stuff. And we were, just, and we were driving and I was like amazed. That's what we do in our soul. We hoard all this stuff, like all what people did to me and how I failed. And it's like God's like, just bring all that to the cross and leave it there. Absalom, bring all your stuff to the cross. Yes, you were, you were mistreated. Yes, that happened. Your dad wasn't, your dad failed. You bring it all to the cross. Bring it all to the cross. Because when we do that, God says, thank you. He takes it and he makes something beautiful out of it. And this is Ecclesiastes 3, 3 verse 11. That God makes all things beautiful in his time. Isn't that great? God is a great God of redemption. I want to think about that. I want to think that way in my life. 
I want to look at things in my life that, you know, maybe there are people there that have been out in the world or maybe here today that have been severely victimized. And you can't even talk about it. Maybe nobody knows about it. And you're like, oh, my gosh, if people only knew what happened to me. Bring it to the cross. Give it to God and, and let God set you free from all of that. And then we can be like David was to Saul. We can be healthy, healed people because we're receiving grace. And we can say, yes, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus could have become like Absalom. His nation rejected him. His people rejected him. His disciples forsook him. And his mother stood afar off. Jesus could have been very bitter. But instead of having a root of bitterness in Hebrews chapter 15, 15 verses 15 through 16, Instead of a root of bitterness coming in and defiling us and defiling many, leave it all to cross. And I just want to close in prayer. And as we close in prayer, I just feel led that we would just close our eyes and bow our heads and just maybe there's stuff that we need to bring to God. I don't know. I don't know what's happening in people's lives. I don't, I'm not really, I don't listen to, I'm not really interested in that sense of what's happening, you know, if we're, whatever's happening, but God is. And if, let's just bow our heads. And if there's something that's in your life, it's in your minds, we don't need to dig very far because when things are not dealt with, it festers and it just spoils everything else in our soul. It's like old food that's not removed from the fridge. It just spoils everything else in the fridge. We just want to bring that to God this morning and just say, God, this is my stuff. This is my stuff. This is all my stuff. This is my failures. This is what other people did to me. This is what people, how people betrayed me. This is how people did not come through for me. Promised me stuff and it never happens. I just want to bring all that to you today. Just lay it at the foot of the cross. I just want to say this is not mine. It's not mine because Jesus took it upon himself when he died on the cross. He took all of our sins. He took all of the sins of the world. Took all the, all the sins of people that injured us, and he took it upon himself. And he said, "You are no longer your sin, and you no longer can have that. You can no no longer have that ownership of what other people did to you. It no longer belongs to you because Jesus took it." And as we're praying this this morning, as we're giving it to God and saying, "God, I'm just giving you all my stuff," God will say, "Okay, I'll take it." Actually, I've already taken it 2,000 years ago without your permission. I just want you to know, and I just want you, God, saying, to experience it personally in your life, that it's gone, it's forgiven. It's like what Nathan said to David, your sin has been removed. We can say that about other people. Other people's sin has been removed. And we just, we just love you, God, for that. You have taken away our burden. And Lord, we want to forgive people this morning. Maybe there's people that need to be, we need to forgive people in our minds we just need to say, you know what, I forgive that person. And I just need to pray for them. And just ask God not to lay it to their account. Maybe we need to forgive ourselves and just allow God to forgive us. To experience that forgiveness. And say, God, I'm forgiven. And you know what, I'm going to forgive myself. I'm not going to let that thing take place in my mind. So I'm not going to let that thing take over in my life. I'm just going to ask for forgiveness. And I'm going to ask God to remove it. And when we do that, God forgives us and he heals us. Satan wants us to be carrying around baggage from the past and baggage from other people and just 
hoarding things in our little soul like that guy in the car who could hardly drive his car because it was so full of trash. Well, we just want to leave that car and leave all that stuff at the cross and just say, God, this is yours. I can't deal with it. I don't even know how to assess it. I don't even know what the motives of what people did or why. I don't even know why I did things. So I'm just leaving that all at the cross today. And as I do that, I'm trusting you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and fill me with brand new vision, brand new joy, brand new hope, brand new energy to step out and experience God's plan. We just thank you, God, that you're God for us. You are for us. And if God be for us, who, who, and that's just a funny question that Paul asks in Romans 8, who can be against us? So we just want to thank you, God, this morning. We just want to worship you this morning and thank you, God, for that. And we just want to worship you. And as Lord, as we, maybe we could just um, segue right into the, into the, into the communion. Maybe if Eddie could just play quietly there in the backgrounds, we could have the communion plates passed out and we'll go right into the communion.